No more loneliness, boredom, sorrow, anger, frustration, pain, heartache, impatience, worry, anxiety. No more hunger or thirst or deprivation or poverty. No more lack of friends or company. No more being excluded and uninvited. No more jealousy and disagreements, discord, enemies, fighting, harsh words and confusion. Did you know that it's official church teaching that you won't be fat in heaven? You also won't have the same hair. You won't be able to get old either. And by the way, well, I guess it goes without saying that you won't have any diseases or sicknesses or disabilities either. But there is loads more to learn about the reality of life in heaven and in hell. Won't you join me for a quick look? This is the John Henry Weston Show. Stay tuned. Before we begin, let me remind you that LifeSite has a great shop full of merch for you to check out. T-shirts and mugs and all sorts of gifts for you, your family, or friends. Check it out at LifeSiteNews.com and click the Shop button in the top right-hand corner. Let's begin as we always do at the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. So, let's get to that first official teaching of the Church about not being fat in heaven. The Catechism of the Council of Trent, which is the greatest teaching document that the Church has, teaches this officially, and quotes the great 4th century doctor of the Church, St. Augustine, as he teaches, and I quote, There shall then be no deformity of body. If some have been overburdened with flesh, you might as well read fat there, they shall not resume its entire weight. All that exceeds the proper proportion shall be deemed superfluous, end quote. Translation, you won't be fat in heaven. Let's back up a little. First off, when you die, your soul is separated from your body and the soul goes to judgment before God. However, after the end of the world, there will be a resurrection of our bodies and then our souls will be reunited with our bodies. Now, here's a curveball. That resurrection of the bodies is for everyone, those in heaven and those in hell. But our bodies will be changed. They will be perfected. And here is what that perfection means. Our hair will be different. As St. Augustine teaches, quote, Man shall not resume his former hair, but shall be adorned with such as will become him. End quote. Translation, You will have the hair that best suits you, rather than that gray, frizzy, too thin or too thick, or maybe balding mop you've got right now. Your limbs will be perfectly healthy. Any deformity and disability, scarring, pimples, blotchiness, dryness, or weakness will be gone. There will, however, be one very interesting exception to that, and that is the martyrs. Their scars shall remain, quote, shining like the wounds of Christ with a brilliance far more resplendent than that of gold and precious stones, end quote. Remember the Bible talks about St. Thomas not believing Christ's resurrection and then finally believing when he's able to put his fingers into the place where the nails were in Christ's hands. So Christ's wounds shine and are glorious forever in heaven, as will be the marks of the martyrdoms of the saints. So, for instance, all those beheaded for Christ will wear something like glorious necklaces, or at least be seen that way. And those who had their hands cut off, like the North American martyrs did, will have glorious bracelets for all eternity. But there is something here also that's sobering. The souls in hell will also get their bodies back, 
but it will be a very bad thing in their case. As the Catechism teaches, and I quote, The wicked, too, shall rise with their members. This restoration of members will serve to increase not their happiness, but their sorrow and misery, end quote. But let's get back to your body in heaven. It will still be your body, but it will be different. The first difference is that your body will be immortal. You won't ever die again. And that goes, too, for the bodies of those in hell. They, too, will resurrect, never to die again, even though, in their case, they would very much want to die, to drop out of existence. Another fascinating aspect of our bodies in heaven is that they will never suffer anything uncomfortable. No pain or inconvenience, no freezing or intense heat. This is called impassibility by the fathers of the church. And it is a gift only for bodies in heaven. Those bodies in hell will be able to feel bodily torments as well as the spiritual horror of separation from God. And here is another amazing thing about what our bodies will be like in heaven. They will shine like the sun. That is actually a teaching of Christ himself as recorded in Matthew chapter 13, verse 43, quote, The just shall shine as the sun in the kingdom of their father, end quote. And remember, too, that Jesus already demonstrated this quality of heavenly bodies when he was on earth, when he took the disciples, Peter, James, and John, up the mountain on the transfiguration. And as they were there, he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. It was also evidenced, actually, by Moses, when his face was so bright after the, he saw God on the mountain that the Israelites could not look at it, and Moses wore a veil over his own face. The Catechism explains the reason for the shining bodies in heaven, or the brightness, as it's called, this way, and I quote, This brightness is a sort of radiance reflected on the body from the supreme happiness of the soul. And in heaven... The holier you were on earth, the more your body will shine, so that there will be an everlasting appreciation for the sanctity you obtained on earth seen by all of your heavenly family for all eternity. There will obviously be big differences in that respect. The Catechism suggests that the brightness exhibited by those in heaven will be as different as the brilliance of the sun compared to the moon compared to the stars. In heaven, your body will be able to fly and to move as fast as you please. Imagine the powers of like Superman or the Flash. And the body in heaven, says the Catechism, will have the quality of agility. That is, it will take on a capability of moving, and this is a direct quote from the Catechism, it will take on a capability of moving with the utmost ease and swiftness wherever the soul pleases, end quote. And there is also subtility, a quality the fathers speak of about glorified bodies where we'll be able to see particularly, we'll be able to see perfectly, even the smallest things, to hear the most sublime sounds, to smell the aromas, to taste delights, all to such an extent as unimaginable here on earth, with the most, even, even if you use the most advanced devices of science. Our bodies will, like Christ's, be able to pass through walls, even though they will still be flesh and blood. But even more impressive will be that our minds will be able to comprehend the incomprehensible, more than all the brightest minds on earth combined, more than AI will ever get to. 
and our hearts will be able to love beyond any human understanding. We will have perfect happiness forever. No more loneliness, boredom, sorrow, anger, frustration, pain, heartache, impatience, worry, anxiety. No more hunger or thirst or deprivation or poverty. No more lack of friends or company. No more being excluded and uninvited. No more jealousy and disagreements, discord, enemies, fighting, harsh words, and confusion. Essential happiness in heaven consists of this. They will have, which the Catechism teaches, quote, consists in the vision of God and the enjoyment of His beauty, who is the source and principle of all goodness and perfection, end quote. It is so good and so perfect that, quote, we shall behold God such as He is in His own nature and substance, and that we ourselves shall become, as it were, gods. End quote. We will be like gods ourselves, since in order to know Him face to face, He has to share with us part of His own divinity. But in addition to this, God in His goodness grants us the knowledge of each member of our heavenly family. All those blessed in heaven, even if they number in the billions, will be known to us individually like brothers and sisters, like family. And in addition to the people there, there will be double that number of angels who you will know and love and will know and love you in a way that's just indescribable. They will each be closer to us than our closest relationship on earth, dearer than our own spouses, best friends, or even children here on earth, deeper than those relationships could ever be. You will be able to see the saints of Christ on earth for the glorious heroes that they really are. Your admiration and love for them will overflow, and they will love you with a love you could never experience here on earth. What an awesome, incomprehensible joy to look forward to. What an incredible inspiration to fight the good fight, to resist the temptations of this world that would deprive us of this unspeakably splendid reward. What a huge consolation when we mourn our dearly departed loved ones who loved Christ, for their reward is so great in heaven. This is why the church tells us to meditate on the four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell, because it gives us what we need to stay the course, to finish the race, to resist the world, the devil, and the flesh. And I hope you've enjoyed this study. And please, avail yourselves of the whole of the Catechism of the Council of Trent. It is a hidden treasure. I wanted to add on to that study of the four last things with some of the descriptions of heaven, of hell, and of purgatory from the saints. The first one comes from Lucy dos Santos, while not yet a saint, her brother or cousins are, um, and she was one of the seers at Fatima, of course, both Jacinta and Francisco, Saint Jacinta and Saint Francisco um, have died and been, been canonized, but we're waiting, of course, on the canonization for Sister Lucy, who just died recently. So this was her description of the vision that the children received from Our Lady of Hell. She said, and I quote, We saw, as it were, a vast sea of fire. Plunged in this fire, we saw the demons and the souls of the damned. 
The latter, that means the souls of the damned, were like transparent, burning embers, all blackened or burnished bronze, having human forms. They were floating about in that conflagration, now raised in the air by flames which issued from within themselves, and together with a great clouds of smoke. Now they fell back on every side like sparks in a huge fire, without weight or equilibrium amid shrieks and groans of pain and despair which horrified us and made us tremble with fright. It must have been this sight which caused me to cry out as people say they heard me. So that's the description from the vision that the three children of Fatima had from Our Lady. Here is the description of hell from St. Teresa of Avila. Our Lord showed St. Teresa the place which she had by her sins deserved in hell um, and then, of course, she had a, a more uh, real conversion. So here's what she writes. And this is in the book of the life of St. Teresa of Jesus. Some considerable time after our Lord had bestowed upon me the graces I have been describing and others also of a higher nature, I was one day in prayer when I found myself in a moment, without knowing how, plunged apparently into hell. I understood that this was our Lord's will, I should see the place which the devils kept in readiness for me, and which I had deserved by my sins. It was but a moment, but it seems to me impossible I should ever forget it, even if I were to live many years. The entrance seemed to be by a long, narrow pass, like a furnace, very low, dark, and close. The ground seemed to be saturated with water, merely mud, exceedingly foul, sending forth pestilential odors and covered with loathsome vermin. At the end was a hollow place in the wall like a closet, and in that I saw myself confined. All this was even pleasant to behold in comparison with what I felt there. There was no exaggeration in what I am saying. But as to what I then felt... I do not know where to begin. If I were to describe it, it is utterly inexplicable. I felt a fire in my soul. I cannot see how it is possible to describe it. My bodily sufferings were unendurable. I have undergone most painful sufferings in this life, and, as the physicians say, the greatest that can be borne, such as the contraction of my sinews when I was paralyzed, without speaking of others of different kinds, yea, even those of which I have also spoken, inflicted on me by Satan. Yet all these were as nothing in comparison with what I felt then, especially when I saw that there would be no intermission nor any end to them. These sufferings were nothing in comparison with the anguish of my soul, a sense of oppression, of stifling, and of pain so keen, accompanied by so hopeless and cruel an infliction, that I know not how to speak of it. If I said that the soul is continually being torn from the body, it would be nothing, for that implies the destruction of life by the hands of another, but here it is the soul itself that is tearing itself in pieces. I cannot describe that inward fire or that despair, surpassing all torments and all pain. Left in that pestilential place, and utterly without the power to hope for comfort, I could neither sit nor lie down. There was no room. I was placed, as it were, in a hole in the wall, and those walls, terrible to look on themselves, hemmed me in on every side. I could not breathe. There was no light, but all was thick darkness. 
I do not understand how it is, though there was no light, yet everything that can give pain by being seen was visible. Our Lord at that time would not let me see more of hell. Afterwards, I had another most fearful vision in which I saw the punishment of certain sins. They were most horrible to look at, but because I felt none of the pain, my terror was not so great. In the former vision, our Lord made me really feel those torments, and that anguish of spirit, just as if I had been suffering them in the body there. I know not how it was, but I understood distinctly that it was a great mercy that our Lord would have me see with mine own eyes the very place from which his compassion saved me. I have listened to people speaking of these things, and I have at other times dwelt on the various torments of hell, though not often, because my soul made no progress by the way of fear. And I have read of the diverse tortures and how the devils tear the flesh with red-hot pincers. But all is as nothing before this. It is a wholly different matter. In short, the one is a reality, the other a picture. And all burning here in this life is as nothing in comparison with the fire that is there. I was so terrified by that vision, and that terror is on me even now while I am writing, that though it took place nearly six years ago, the natural warmth of my body is chilled by fear even now when I think of it. And so, amid all the pain and suffering which I may have had to bear, I remember no time in which I do not think that all we have to suffer in this world is as nothing. It seems to me that we complain without reason. I repeat it. This vision was one of the grandest mercies of our Lord. It has been to me of the greatest service, because it has destroyed my fear of trouble and of the contradiction of the world, and because it has made me strong enough to bear up against them and to give thanks to our Lord, who has been my deliverer, as it now seems to me, from such fearful and everlasting pains. Just a quick note before we return. If you would like to stay up to date on LifeSite's coverage of the latest life, family, and culture news, subscribe to one of our many newsletters by going to lifesitenews.com slash subscribe. And if you'd like to help us bring our truth-telling coverage to millions around the world, please consider making a one-time or monthly donation at give.lifesitenews.com. And now, back to the video. And then there's this testimony from St. Catherine of Genoa, who lived from 1447 to 1510. She was a mystic who suffered purgatory's torments on earth and explained that one suffers simultaneously unspeakable torment as well as indescribable happiness in purgatory. So that's very interesting because in purgatory, it's said that the pains are equal to that of hell. But there's this addendum that there's a great happiness as well. And here is the description from St. Catherine of Genoa, and I quote, However rigorous the punishments of purgatory may be, they are soothed by hope. So she describes the torment as stemming from a continually consuming interior fire kindled by the separation from God, for whom the soul is aflame with love. And this suffering is so intense that it transforms each instant into a martyrdom of pain. Although surpassing all earthly suffering, it cannot be compared with the anguish of hell, where the suffering is despairing fruit of hatred, while the suffering of purgatory is a hope-filled suffering of love. 
Consequently, St. Catherine said that only in heaven itself is there greater happiness than amidst the torments of purgatory. This is because the soul knows it is saved in friendship with God, surrounded by holy souls, and thus aflame with love of God. St. Catherine explained, and I quote, I believe no happiness can be found worthy to be compared with that of a soul in purgatory, except that of the saints in paradise. And day by day, this happiness grows as God flows into these souls, more and more as the hindrance to his entrance is consumed. Sin's rust is the hindrance, and the fire burns the rust away, so that more and more the soul opens itself up to the divine inflowing, a thing which is covered cannot respond to the sun's rays, not because of any defect in the sun, which is shining all the time, but because the cover is an obstacle. If the cover be burnt away, this thing is open to the sun more and more as the cover is consumed does it respond to the rays of the sun. It is in this way that rust, which is sin, covers souls and in purgatory is burnt away by fire. The more it is consumed, the more do the souls respond to God, the true Son. As the rust lessens and the soul is opened up to the divine ray, happiness grows. Until the time be accomplished, the one wanes and the other waxes. Pain, however, does not lessen, but only the time for which pain is endured. As for will, never can the soul say these pains are pains so contended are they with God's ordaining with which in pure charity, their will is united. And finally, let me give you the attempt at a description of heaven. Now, you'll notice that in the writings of the saints, you'll see many descriptions of hell, purgatory as well, never really ones of heaven. And that's because, in truth, heaven is incomprehensible to us. Remember what the saints have said. If you even had a glimpse of heaven, you would die of joy. So there's no earthly way to understand the glory of heaven. I've tried to describe it from the best that the saints had to offer, but here is something from St. John Bosco. St. John Bosco used to tell bedtime stories to his boys, and just after the death of Dominic Savio, one of his boys, he had a vision, and a vision of Dominic Savio in paradise. And here is the description from St. John Bosco to his boys of that dream. As you know, dreams come in one sleep. So during the night hours of December 6th, while I was in my room, whether reading or pacing back and forth or resting in my bed, I'm not sure, I began dreaming. It suddenly seemed to me that I was standing on a small mound of hillock on the rim of a broad plain so far reaching that the eye could not compass its boundaries lost in vastness. All was blue, Blue as the calmest sea, though what I saw was not water. It resembled a highly polished, sparkling sea of glass. Stretching out beneath, behind, and on either side of me was an expanse of what looked like a seashore. And then, in St. John Bosco's dream, St. Dominic Savio appeared in paradise of grand gardens and indescribable beauty. Broad, imposing avenues divided the plain into grand gardens of indescribable beauty each broken up by thickets, lawns, and flower beds of varied shapes and colors. None of the plants we know could ever give you an idea of those flowers, although there was a resemblance of sorts. The very grass, the flowers, the trees, the fruit, all were of a singular and magnificent beauty. Leaves were of gold. Trunks and boughs were 
of diamonds, and every tiny detail was in keeping with this wealth. The various kinds of plants were beyond counting. Each species and each single plant sparkled with a brilliance of its own. Scattered throughout those gardens and spread over the entire plain, I could see countless buildings whose architecture, magnificence, harmony, grandeur, and size were so unique that one could say all the treasures of the earth could not suffice to build a single one. If only my boys had one such house, I said to myself, how they would love it how happy they would be, and how much they would enjoy being there. Thus ran my thoughts as I gazed upon the exterior of those buildings, but how much greater must their inner splendor have been. As I stood there basking in the splendor of those gardens, I suddenly heard music most sweet, so delightful and enchanting, a melody that I could never adequately describe it. Compared with it, the compositions of Father Cagliero and Brother Dogliani hardly music at all. A hundred thousand instruments played, each with its own sound, uniquely different from all others, and every possible sound set the air alive with its resonant waves. Blended with them were the songs of choristers. In those gardens I looked upon a multitude of people enjoying themselves happily, some singing, others playing, but every note had the effect of a thousand different instruments playing together. At one and the same time, if you can imagine such a thing, one could hear all the notes of the chromatic scale, from the deepest to the highest, yet all in perfect harmony. Ah, yes, we have nothing on earth to compare with that symphony. One could tell from the expression of those happy faces that the singers not only took the deepest pleasure in singing, but also received vast joy in listening to the others. The more they sang, the more pressing became their desire to sing. The more they listened, the more vibrant became their yearning to hear more. As I listened enthralled to that heavenly choir, I saw an endless multitude of boys approaching me. Many I recognized as having been at the oratory and in our other schools, but far from the majority of them were total strangers to me. Their endless ranks drew closer, headed by Dominic Savio, who was followed immediately by Father Alazonati, Father Ciali, Father Giolotti, and many other clerics and priests, each leading a squad of boys. Once that host of boys got some eight or ten paces from me, they halted. There was a flash of light far brighter than before. The music stopped, and hushed silence fell over all. A most radiant joy encompassed all the boys and sparkled in their eyes, their countenances aglow with happiness. They looked and smiled at me very pleasantly as though to speak, but no one said a word. Dominic Savio stepped forward a pace or two, standing so close to me that, had I stretched out my hand, I would surely have touched him. He too was silent, and gazed upon me with a smile. At last, Dominic Savio spoke. Why do you stand there silent, as though you were almost devitalized? He asked. Aren't you the one who once feared nothing, holding your ground against slander, persecution, hostility, hardships, and dangers of all sorts? Where is courage? Say something. I forced myself to reply in a stammer. I do not know what to say. Are you Dominic Savio? And the boy replied, Yes, I am. Don't you know me anymore? How come you are here? I asked, still bewildered. Savio spoke affectionately. I came to talk with you. We spoke together so often on earth. Do you not recall how much you loved me, or how many tokens of friendship you gave me, and how kind you were to me? And did I not return the warmth of your love? 
how much trust I placed in you. So why are you tongue-tied? Why are you shaking? Come, ask me a question or two. Summoning my courage, I replied, I'm shaking because I don't know where I am. You are in the abode of happiness, Savio answered, where one experiences every joy and every delight. Is this the reward of the just? And Savio replied, not at all. Here we do not enjoy supernatural happiness, but only a natural one, though greatly magnified. John Bosco asks, might I be allowed to see a little supernatural light? And Savio replies, no one can see it until he has come to see God as he is. The faintest ray of that light would instantly strike one dead because the human senses are not sturdy enough to endure it. And there, my friends, are descriptions from the saints of heaven, hell, and purgatory. I hope you'd enjoyed both this study and these reflections from the saints, and I hope you join us again on the John Henry Weston Show. May God bless you. Hi, everyone. This is John Henry Weston. We hope you enjoyed this video. And to see more like this, be sure to hit the subscribe button below to get all the latest content from LifeSite News. So check out our links in the description to read more, sign up for our newsletter, and connect with us on social media so that you can stay up to date with all of the latest life, family, and culture news. Thanks for watching, and may God bless you.